So for the last evening, it would be natural to have a talk that is integrative, rousing, inspiring, and takes us out into the world with further energy, bringing together all of what we've done. And um, I could also, <laughs> I could also, um, for those who savor more learning, could give um, kind of a, a boring and dry talk on, <laughs> on some of the details of um, classical Buddhist psychology and its application to the theory of conflict resolution and really test you with your ability to be with boredom <laughs> and, and see how see how your tools for inner and outer conflict have evolved. So I could do that, but I'm not that advanced. So I'm going to probably aim more towards the first. <laughs> or, or maybe not. We'll see. So what I had considered are five guidelines for practicing with conflict. That in a way, I think it does uh, connect some of what we've explored and help us um, focus on a few areas which I think can really uh, carry us further into our daily lives, our daily engagements. I'll name the five and they'll be familiar, but I'd like to uh, explore each of them partly by talking about some of my own experiences with, um, with conflicts and some of what I've learned, some of my suffering. The first is that transforming reactivity and being able to respond skillfully is at the heart of our work with conflict. The second is that grounding in the body plays a central role. The third is about the importance of seeking balance as we work with conflict. And that'll actually add some perspectives that we haven't looked at quite so fully, but it will connect with a lot of the others. The fourth is the importance of, of, of seeking that vision of non-dual conflict transformation. And the fifth is uh, engaging in that practice of combining continual effort and return to difficult or conflictual situations that continual keeping one's eye on the North Star with an ability to let go of attachment to specific outcomes. Challenging. 
And I offer this as some of what I've learned and I'm still learning. And I, I often like to say that um, maybe many of us are public speakers. And sometimes the speaking and being in this role can bring out what we know at our best. And I often say to myself, you should really listen to what that guy says. So the first is transforming reactivity and that it is, in terms of our inner work, it's at the core of what we do with conflict. And then learning how to respond skillfully. So transforming reactivity in ourselves and learning to respond skillfully when there is reactivity is at the heart of what we do. It's where our practice of mindfulness comes in with that we can be aware of reactivity and not be taken over by it over time. Or at least that we can be taken over with it and we recover uh, sooner than we might have otherwise. Or that if we have a community, we can get support for working with reactivity as has happened at this retreat. Over time, as we study the reactive patterns, learn about them, have more mindfulness, more awareness, that space opens up where in the moment of possibly going down the road of reactivity, we say, hmm, I feel my body and my mind moving with force in a certain direction. Do I want to go there? That's what our practice makes possible. And then eventually we come to actually feel it even sooner and feel the glimmerings of it and say, nope, I'm not going there. That's the fruit of practice. We can transform reactivity that's been around for a really long time. It's possible with this practice. We can transform patterns that have been there for 50 years that are really deep. This practice of awareness and compassionate presence has tremendous power. We can work with it. I'm thinking of one person who I've worked with pretty extensively in, in the area of reactive judgments. And this person was um, caught in self-judgments and has been probably since about age four or five, a hard family situation, developing into almost a perpetual mood of self-judgment. I am basically the problem. Still a highly functional individual. I think of this, I just had this thought, this cartoon that I, that I like, which I've had sometimes, which shows this person sitting at a desk and the head is kind of a triangle at one, you know, at like 45 degrees and it's kind of, and the, the caption of the cartoon is um, neurotic as hell, but still functional. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
And so this, I, I'm not putting this person in that category, but it's just that could have these deep self-judgments and still actually have a pretty uh, happy life in many ways. You know, have uh, good work, family, and so forth, but have this mood so that when he would sometimes uh, wake up in the morning, there'd be this mood that is just, has a negative sense to it. Or if there was any kind of problem, it always would be, oh, I just messed things up. A pattern been around for 50 years, and working over about a two-year period pretty intensively with mindfulness, with a lot of energy, because there comes a time when it's, a per, you know, our organisms say, enough do I want to live, you know? Do I want to live? And I know that's, that kind of energy for transformation is present with many of us. I hear that a lot. You know, I am, I'm ready to let go of certain patterns. And he, in two years of pretty sustained work, those patterns first became more visible. Then we're able to be worked to us. There were back and forth and times when I thought, oh my God, nothing's changing. But at a certain point, and it really helped to have, and I'll come to this in a moment, it really helped to have practices also that cultivated joy, that took him in a different direction. And I'll come back to that. It's my uh, third point that he was able really to shift. And at this point, he talks about how those moods come up sometimes, but he says, no. And he shifts, he knows ways to shift the energy. A pattern which you could imagine is probably also intergenerational, been passed down, cut through with these tools. Very powerful, not a superficial pattern. So our practice has that kind of power. Also, the support of community. So we learn how to work with those patterns, see them, study them, transform them. We learn how better to be present when there's some kind of pain. We learn to recognize our own reactivity sooner. And we can be with a situation, and as we practice more, even sometimes when we are taken away some awareness remains. Do you know that one? Or we, some awareness remains, or maybe we remember it in the evening, whereas formerly we never would have remembered it. I've been reactive, you know, and something doesn't feel right. You know, or we have that ability, some part of us knows what's happening even when we lose it. You know, I was thinking of um, um, pretty, a pretty interesting experience that I had in a retreat early on in my practice where uh, there was tremendous pressure in my mind and I actually think I was a little crazy for about 12 hours, you know, like almost in a psychotic state. Different than now. <laughs> and it's actually, you know, it's not, it's not actually so funny. It was, it's um, because it was, it was really like, what was striking for me was that there was a way that my mind was really out of control and I was experiencing almost like a state going through my heart. And it was like I was spinning into this vortex. And yet there was mindfulness. I was surprised, I said, oh my gosh, that practice is having some fruits. There was some awareness and it gave some stability 
to what was a really rough experience. And then the next day I talked with Joseph Goldstein, who was my teacher, and I t reported and he said, oh yeah, that happened to me once. <laughs> I kind of dropped it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just went on, it didn't, you know, I mean, some of the underlying stuff still manifested, but it was, it, it was, um, the, the mindfulness surprised me, you know, that, that quality. There's a beautiful poem from Thich Nhat Hanh about that being with conflict during the war in Vietnam. He says, flare bombs bloom on the dark sky. A child claps his hands and laughs. I hear the sound of guns and the laughter dies, but the witness remains. And so we have different ways of working with reactivity. We have our meditative ways. We have our ways through the embodied practice. We can see how the, those ways of grounding and centering are so powerful for working with reactivity. We can feel in the embodied practice how we lose our center and then can regain it. We have our ways of learning to speak more skillfully, wise speech, nonviolent communication, some of the methods that Lawrence introduced us to, the dialogue. And so we, we develop these tools that can really help us to be with this reactivity. The second area that I want to focus on is that the body play, can play this incredibly central role in being with conflict. And I think we know that. That the um, staying in the body, being present to the body, is helpful on so many, many levels. We can simply learn to move out of that mental stream that is so much of our culture. That we don't get monopolized by the continual mind, uh, mind chatter. That just being aware of the body in daily life helps take us out of that continual, continual, um, almost like this monolithic mind movement that really has been our culture. Some of you know Buddha Dasa asked, what do you, how do you find Western civilization lost in thought? He said. And there's something very, I think, revolutionary about being in the body in terms of our culture. It's actually, uh, I like thinking about it this way, that um, there's a way in which uh, and I think this was really what Lawrence was talking about last night. It's that there's been this four or 5,000 year movement to, it's almost like we've come out of the bodies and out of the earth and emphasized the mental. And it's a time now for integration. And that integration connects the heart and the mind and the body. And when we do that embodied practice, we are doing that integration, which is what is the healing that our culture death, you know, so dearly needs. 
when we do it individually, it has cultural import. And yet it's hard because our jobs and our civilization doesn't give too much room for that. It goes against the grain. And so, but to do that is so crucial to connect the mind and the body and the heart. And then again, like Lawrence, I don't want to say that this is simply an error to focus on the mind so much. There are obviously tremendous gifts and powers, but the past seems to be how do, you, how do we integrate them? How do we connect? And how do we work with the body and understand its intelligence? Because one of the main ways that the body is helpful is for really giving us access to information that we wouldn't otherwise have. We can really know about reactivity well if we stay with our bodies. Being with the body has been such a central part of my own practice. Um, I think I was raised to be, um, even though I was uh, an athlete as a child and teenager and some in college, I was a kind of a disembodied, physically active athlete. Most athletes probably are. I would think not really, you know, it's like the mind uses the body to perform in a way. And, and so coming more into the body was what I, part of what I first discovered in meditation and it felt revolutionary. You know, it's that phrase that we hear sometimes coming to our senses and the sense world opening up. I'm sure we've all had that experience, opening up with brilliance and with sparkle and with seeing in a different way. The teacher I've most worked with in the last 10 years is John Travis, who is a teacher of the body. And so much of our work has been grounding more fully in the body and integrating in a way that I think for myself, my mind was pretty developed and I think my heart was pretty, basically pretty good. That, that came through okay, especially, you know, after I finished being a teenager. And, and, uh, and yet I could have an open heart and a fairly clear mind and not be very grounded and kind of be knocked around by things, very much like we were practicing with Tija and Richard. And it was, so it, it took, you know, for me it was like taking some years to really ground an awareness in the whole body and then I think I spent two years mostly focusing on my belly, the hara, in retreats and in daily life, go to meetings, hara, you know, and so forth. And um, what that practice does is it sort of, uh, what, um, it, rewi it rewires <laughs> to use the understanding of neurology and the brain, it rewires things so that it kind of, kind of gets burned in. You know, just like uh, when we do mindfulness, something gets rewired. When we do metta, something gets rewired. And so John once said to me, I, was, I think I was complaining about how relatively we have so little support compared to all those 
Asian teachers who live in monasteries and you know it's like because I could feel like when I'm in a retreat or something a lot of support and then you know in um, daily life doesn't feel like so much I was complaining and he said let your body be your monastery and I was electrified by that it really something really connected And so I really believe that if we want to work well with conflict, we need some kind of body practice. I would say, and the kind of this point and the next two are really to say we need a body practice, we need a heart practice, and we need a mind practice. And it's helpful actually, ultimately they make it integrated, it's helpful to actually have them as distinct. To have a body practice, maybe like what we've been doing like those practices of grounding and centering and blending so that this gets brought down into our bodies. That's not always the case in the Buddhist world. You know, I think a lot of people have mentioned that kind of a lot of Buddhists tend to go into Buddhism through a more intellectual approach, through understanding, which has its virtues, of course, but we can often not be so grounded. So some kind of body practice. Yoga, as Richard was mentioning, takes us a certain way there. Even walking meditation done in certain ways can really be a beautiful practice. Buddha Dasa once said, do not do anything that takes you out of your body. One of John's teachers said, if the mind is in the body, there's no problem. And yet we know that um, sometimes when we're in conflicts, the conflicts can almost rack the body. You know, so we have the body practices can help us to deal with that, that somatic manifestation that can happen with conflicts. We know that conflicts can really almost, uh, um, almost like nail us to the stake for whatever your metaphor is, can, can leave us, leave the body filled with stress. Now I was thinking of a pretty intense conflict that I, I was involved with a few years ago where I felt really attacked by multiple people. And um, there was something about the intensity of it that almost took me into what we might call core material. I think each of us actually have some place in ourselves where we don't believe in ourselves, where we think um, I'm basically flawed, different for different of us, or the world is not safe. Comes out of some kind of residue of pain, sometimes trauma. It might be, I'm not lovable. I think many of us have touched that at certain times, you know, and part of this inner work takes us into that territory. and We have to eventually face that. I know in some of my own inner work, I have um, come up, get up against the image that if I was really fully myself, 
I would be a lonely old man on the street without any friends. That may sound irrational, but it's in the psyche. You know, and you can find it in dreams and in other places. I think each of us have some version of that. And sometimes conflicts take us right into that material. I think we may know that. It's, it's one way of holding some of what happens to us, some of what's happened in here. Um, that we get taken into that material and we're basically four years old or two years old or whatever, pre-verbal. And it can feel intense in the body. And it can feel, I know for myself, it was like there was a pain in my chest that lasted for weeks. You know, we can have to stay with that. So we, we build the capacity. How do we build the capacity to be with that? To, to stay with that? It's helpful to know that that, I think we know that, right? That comes with the territory sometimes of being with conflict. It takes a lot of discipline sometimes to not just be reactive in that, in that kind of situation. So being with the body and grounding, I think for myself I found it tremendously helpful to do body practices in that time. To be on the earth, to walk, almost like what we did with Lawrence, where we, in a sense, trusted that the earth could hold that pain and have us heal from it. You know, I like to also, I like to go swimming, I like to walk on the earth. And the swimming, if you, it's like this purifying quality of water. I can feel that when there's that kind of stress. And, and yet, that going into those difficult things with a certain perspective, we actually, it's not that we just go to this hard place and it's bad and we have to, you know, endure it and so forth. It's actually, with a certain attitude, healing can occur. Conflicts permit a certain healing of that deep core material. And I felt that happen in this particular conflict because I was bringing as much awareness as I could. And there was a sense over time that um, I could see essentially where I was giving up myself, where I was stepping out of my power in that sense, in that healthy sense of power that, that Richard's been using. Very old patterns. You know, where I learn to say, if I'm myself in a deep way, I will not be loved. Some deep, or, or that if I'm that way, it must, it must be something not quite right. You know? And so, in being with that material with more mindfulness, and actually looking at that, looking at what came up, there was, I felt, a, a really a much deeper ability, a, a number of notches more to be with myself and to rest in my own being, which is all, that's what we're up to, isn't it? So I'm saying that conflict can take us there and we can develop the capacity so that we can be with that and work with it and shed some of the core stuff, work through it. And it means that, that may be the most intense conflict, you know. For me, that was very intense. I don't remember something like that for a number of years. But we can work with them that way. And it really relates to the third area that I want to focus on, which is that quality of, I would say, when we're working with conflict, it becomes really important 
to seek the, a kind of balance that lets us rest in the heart. When I've been working with people on judgments, I have found over the years that it's really central when people are going into the pain connected with judgments to simultaneously have a practice which goes towards the beautiful, which goes towards the open, beautiful heart. And that people can't just go with the, you know, the hard stuff. I remember Michael Mead once said after 9-11, he said the antidote to fear is beauty. And I think of how metta was conceived of as an antidote to fear and how metta and the Brahma-vihara are often talked about as the beautiful states of the heart. And we can think of that when we're in conflict, keep cultivating the beautiful. Keep cultivating what really you can rest in and you know almost without a question, this is wonderful, this is beautiful, this is part of my basic nature. As a balance, as a refuge, I think it comes a lot through song. There's something so nourishing. That's, do you know how the last two nights after the chanting by Lily and Aline, no one moved, the so-called sitting ovation. <laughs> what was that about? It was about that kind of saying, this something is incredibly nourishing. Something is incredibly um, restorative, giving me something, giving me resources, capacity that I really want and need, maybe not for that, of course not necessarily for that immediate moment, but just saying yes, yes. And, and to somehow have a regular practice of that. Metta practice could be gratitude for joy, something, even generosity as a practice, something which uplifts the heart, I would say, is a crucial practice if we're going to be in conflict. So I want to say that there's the heart, there's the body practice, there's the heart practice of really, in a way, uh, finding that as a refuge. The way that in the civil rights movement, song was so central. That the song carried the energy and was a refuge. I know from reading uh, and hearing speeches from Dr. King, there's a continual sense. And, you know, the, the realities of his life were not always publicized because he was kind of turned into a, what? Um, um, kind of an icon, yeah, an icon. In reality, his life was hard. He got depressed. You can imagine, he was carrying like the whole huge shadow of, you know, whatever, 500 years. And he sometimes would stay in bed for days. He smoked, he overate, and so forth. I think they turn him into an icon because uh, it's hard for people's minds to bring together those facts with what he actually did. It doesn't, we have this image of stars or something. It's not real. And yet he also had all these ways of shifting the energy, song and prayer. And, you know, there is a balm in Gilead. 
that song. And so having a heart practice, having something that takes us into beauty, having a beauty practice, being with song as a regular practice, especially if there's conflict. And the fourth quality I want to mention is that of um, the importance when we're working with conflict of continually seeking vision and direction that connects us with this sense of the non-dual approach to conflict. Of really remembering that sense of non-duality in relation to conflict and having that be the North Star that guides us. For us, we can work with that in a number of ways. We can take some of the practices that we've learned in a, in a simple way. From Lawrence, those little exercises with um, Hardy and Jean and who were the other ones? <laughs> huh? Jan and Harry. <laughs> Hmm. So we can take we can take that kind of that kind of vision and say, can I go into any conflict that I'm part of, whether it's an intrapsychic conflict or an interpersonal conflict, or even looking at the Middle East, and can I go there and have that non-dual vision? Because I think ultimately we train in it, and and over time it becomes our normal vision. And that's so much what the world needs. It's really another way to say it is we, be, we become peacemakers. We see the world increasingly. So I think we can see ourselves maybe as training. Take every conflict and use some of those models. Use the Galtung model. Look for both and way of envisioning conflicts you're in. Remember that. Ask that question. We know that a lot of it actually, once you ask the question, it's not so hard. The way we did this afternoon, apparent both end, or apparent conflict, right? Apparent conflict. On the one hand, kitchen. We want everyone to be there. On the other hand, we're busy. <laughs> we were, you know, this is about engaged practice and we're engaged. <laughs> and sometimes we have to a day or two late, you know, could be a conflict, could be, could end up with a power move. You know, we will, you can't come to the retreat unless you come the whole time. That, that would be not a both end resolution, right? And so in our creativity, in 15 minutes, we resolved it. <laughs> you know, by saying, let us actually, and it, we did it almost intuitively by just having a clear sense of what the needs of the kitchen were, right? And we said, well, are there other ways we can meet the kitchen's needs for the needs of the manager? And I think that kind of uh, both-end uh, intuition started, started clicking. 
you know, and uh, I was helped by Trinity's having grown up in a big family, <laughs> you know. Sharing the bathroom and doing what you need to do to get things done and it doesn't always look the way some person wants it to look, you know. And so I think we continually have that vision and we develop it. Uh, I was thinking of an experience that I had with um, um, probably, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I was invited to uh, New Mexico with Diana Winston and we were invited to help uh, a community forum and to kind of be witnesses. It was a community that was organi organized around the connection of Buddhist practice with um, um, offering hospice work and giving, uh, being with the aging and dying. Beautiful project and to have, it was a beautiful idea, something like a Buddhist old folks home, which if anyone is in need of a project that has actually significant income possibilities, that's it. It's going to be a huge need in a while. I just, I offer that freely. <laughs> no need for kickback. <laughs> and anyway, they brought us down there. We were with this. It was a small group of people who were forming it. And they first asked us just to be observers. After about half a day, it became evident that there were significant conflicts within the group. And they said, you be facilitators. <laughs> And Diane and I had, had been working a lot together for about 10 years. And um, we just went into operation as facilitators. There was no planning, no thinking. We just did it. And it felt like there was that intuitive sense of how to work with the conflict in a non-dual way. I think it also surfaced here a few times, you know, in the first two retreats. Remember when Messiah and I did that work the second day? And Diane and I were really clear. If we had been told to come down and facilitate, you know, three months in advance, we would have done like 30 or 40, 50 hours of preparation. We would have interviewed all sorts of people and we would have been nowhere near as effective. <laughs> that there was a sense of that uh, non-dual work with conflict became intuitive. I think that's where we go. As we practice more, it becomes more and more what's just in our, in our being. That's our practice, to have that be, just that, have that be like that. Um, we become peacemakers. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh said this about Vietnam. We were able to understand the suffering of both sides, the communists and the anti-communists. We try to be open to both, to understand this side and, and to understand that side, to be one with them. That is why we did not take a side, even though the whole world took sides. We tried to tell people our perception of the situation, that we wanted to stop the fighting, but the bombs were so loud. Sometimes we had to burn ourselves alive to get the message across. But even then the world could not hear us. They thought we were supporting a kind of political act. They didn't know that it was a purely human action to be heard, to be understood. We wanted reconciliation, we did not want a victory. Reconciliation is to understand both sides, to go to one side and to describe the suffering being endured by the other side, and then to go to the other side and to describe the suffering being endured by the first side. That's what Galtung actually does in his work. He calls it being a conflict worker. It's actually primarily about listening. 
It's about listening, being open, and listening for that both end response. And the last area I want to talk about just briefly is this sense of as we mature in this, I think we mature in our continual commitment to be with the situation, even if it's difficult, even if there's a conflict, and learn to be present and in a different, in a variety of ways, not be so attached to very specific in, uh, outcomes, to keep one's uh, eye on the prize, and to really have that deep intention that doesn't get caught in moment-to-moment -moment outcomes. That is extremely challenging. It's paradoxical to think about, isn't it? You know, it's like, okay, if I'm letting go of outcomes, does that mean I'm letting go of what I want to happen? And what about my intention? And <laughs> got a conflict right there. And, and yet there's some, so there is something paradoxical. And uh, we know that from Yarrow's uh, presentation. And when actually, when I went out there and saw her, her um, the sign for her workshop today, which said, I think, what, paradox and parody or something? Polarity. Polarity. I read it wrongly. I read it as paradox party. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else do that? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that's partly what happens with this. There's a paradox party. And we, we rest in that in a way. And we, there are certain qualities. And it, to me, uh, I, I explored this quite a bit in, in at the last chapter of my book. It's actually my favorite chapter in the book, where uh, there's qualities of what does it mean to be completely committed? We keep on coming back, sometimes taking timeouts, but keep on coming back, engaging. And we are not attached to this or that outcome. It's like uh, T.S. Eliot, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. And like some of the qualities of that are this sense of, it might be to have this very long view, to know that the deepest intentions in human life go very deeply, they take time. You know, whether it's individual awakening or reconciliation of a major conflict. It's like Dr. Ariyaratni's 500-year plan. Or my friend, my Vietnamese friend uh, Minduk said, during the Vietnam War, we knew that we were going against two huge and powerful forces, those Vietnamese who benefited from the war and the Americans. We did not think that by demonstrating, we'd turn things around immediately. Rather, we had to look to the long-term process of practice, which is called two in Vietnamese. Two means to transform bad to good, today one inch, tomorrow another inch. We might not be successful right away, but perhaps in 10 years we would succeed. That's how we thought. That was the policy of the Buddhist church, communicated verbally by other young people and by local monks and nuns. For 100 years we were controlled by the French and then the other religions took over. We knew that it would take years to untie the knot. And yet that's hard. Emotionally, that's hard. We want immediate change. And somehow we 
have to, in a way, mobilize that energy that lets us keep acting and not be so caught in, so that we grasp after outcomes, so that we have a meeting and we try to overly control it, or that we get so reactive that we think that if this outcome isn't going to happen, something is awful is going to be present. And it's tricky, you know, there's a lot of discrimination needed. I think I'll end with something by uh, Vandana Shiva. Some of you know um, from India. How many know Vandana Shiva's work? Yeah. Indian eco-feminist, environmental activist, worked a lot with the dams. This is, this is an, interv uh, an interview with her. Interviewer asked her, every time I've heard you speak or met you, you've had so much energy, not only intellectual energy, but personal or spiritual energy. I'm just wondering what keeps you so alive. And she said, well, it's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know, I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them. But then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. Let's just sit for a moment and then we can have a little bit of discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.